Hi, good afternoon. I'm Dr. Monique Mondesi from Optimal Care Pediatrics. And with me today is Dr. Ajaya, pediatric pulmonologist. And we are going to be talking about the respiratory issues in the NICU graduates. So our first question is, what gestational age is considered preterm? Anything but those 35 weeks of gestation is considered preterm. And why do these babies have more respiratory issues? Well, the earlier they're born, um, the less mature their pulmonary systems are. Mm-hmm. A lot of the babies that are born, for example, close to 28 weeks gestation, barely have their um, lungs matured to any degree, so they're really still slightly above a budding phase. So at that point in time, they have incredibly little reserves of their own, and so virtually any sort of infection of the sorts would make things a lot worse for them. And also, on the other hand, they really do not have very good ability to absorb gases, so they struggle. And briefly, what types of breathing supports do these babies need in the NICU, like CPAP or nasal cannula? So depending on how early they're born, you know, some kids are really lucky. You'll have a 28-weeker that comes out and their lungs are mature enough that you barely have to put them on oxygen for a couple of weeks and they're good. And then you might have this 32-week kid who looks like they're quite big and should be doing well, but their lungs are just not mature or for some reason they just haven't matured enough and they could need anything as simple as just oxygen or they might actually end up on a ventilator for weeks. Excellent. And are preterm infants more likely to develop asthma? They're not necessarily more likely to develop asthma. It is true that they um, their airways are more ticklish in the sense that they are slightly more reactive in general. And depending on what kind of exposures they have early, so if they run into certain viruses like RSV, which have a tendency to um, put a person into a pro-inflammatory state, then more likely than not, they may develop asthma going down the line. So it's kind of a touchy one. If there's a family history, more likely, but otherwise not necessarily. Okay. And why is the flu virus and RSV concerning for these young babies? Now, um, RSV actually is a big problem for babies. RSV stands for respiratory virus. And one of the problems with that virus is that if you get an infection with it, it literally sloughs off your airway lining, creates a significant amount of damage, blocks up your upper airways as well as, well as your lower airways. So children literally struggle to get enough air in, which is really the primary problem that they have. And then secondarily, obviously, are the effects that it also has in the lungs. The problem with RSV is that even when you recover from RSV, your airways are typically in an inflammatory state. So even if you're not an asthmatic, you're sort of left with airways that are sort of in a pro-inflammatory state. So every other cold you get after that doesn't have to be RSV. could be rhinovirus, could be enterovirus, could be parainfluenza, whatever you get almost seems to hit you like you're having RSV all over. So it just irritates and inflames your airways. On top of that is the fact that, you know, between 20 to 50% of patients with RSV may go ahead and develop asthma down the line just as a result of having had an RSV infection earlier on. So that is something to worry about. When it comes to influenza, slightly different. It's not really necessarily what it does long-term to the lungs. It's more of the acute infection um, can be um, significant. But secondarily, you can develop what we call a bit of an allergy, where your lungs, where your um, pulmonary systems are sort of weakened. And so secondary infections can become an issue. So you can start with influenza and then end up with a bacterial pneumonia afterwards or something like that. And when you're that young, well, that could be that could be quite dangerous for you. Mm-hmm. I've seen a few cases this season. Mm-hmm. And what can parents do to prevent flu and RSV infection? Well, you should definitely make sure that if your child is six months on over, 
they should definitely get a flu shot. There really is no excuse to not get it. If your child is less than six months, then everyone who's making contact with that child should have a flu shot. That's mum, dad, older siblings, caregivers. Because the one thing you really can't do is bring influenza into the house when you had when you, you all could have protected yourselves now. Protection is not necessarily complete, but you're not really doing your job if you're not, not getting that protection for yourself. As far as RSV is concerned, it's a bit more tricky. There is um, an antibody that can be given, which is synergis, but it's really specifically for a very select subset of patients now, which is your super primies, which are the 28 weekers, and then some kids between 29 and 32 weeks that need to be on oxygen. But still, RSV is typically spread by contact. So if you can get people to wash their hands, keep clean, that's the first step in everything. The second thing I always say is, RSV can be spread on your clothes. So you need to make sure that if, you, um, if you've been out and if you've come in contact with someone who's got a cold or if you've come in contact with someone who's got children and they've got kids with stuffy noses, make sure that as soon as you get home, you change your clothes and change everything. One of the funny things I always tell my patients is it's probably a lot easier to go to, the, to, go to a mall than it is to go to a church during the RSV season, which is kind of weird to say. Um, but the reality of it is, you can't take new life into a church and then tell people not to touch it. And RSV is spread by contact. So in a mall, everyone's a stranger. You can be as mean as you want to be and tell people to stay away from your kid. You can't do the same thing in church. During flu season, you need to stay away from both the church and the mall because that is is airborne. So you really have to be careful. Excellent. Thank you. Good tips. Um, So I get this question a lot. Mm -hmm. Does the flu shot cause flu? No. The flu shot does not cause influenza. Thank you. It does not. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, why do we have to get the flu shots every year? So you have to get the flu shot every year because the funny thing about the flu is there's typically more than one strain that goes around every year. And the strain also changes per year. So every year what actually ends up happening is the um, CDC, which is the um, government and arm that deals with infectious diseases, goes out there and samples to see what's likely to be coming around the next season based on what's already showing up in other parts of the world. And so they actually go every year and customize the flu shot to try and match it to the viruses that we're expecting to see come around during our flu season. So whatever flu shot you got last year isn't going to protect you from influenza this year. It's going to be something completely different. So you really need to get your flu shot every year. It's funny, I had a mom that just came by and said, oh gosh, my kid's getting a second dose of a flu shot this month. And I said, good. I said, that's great because the kids just turned eight months old, so just old enough to get flu shots and all. I said, well, now you do realize that come October, you're starting all over because whatever you're getting now is for the current season. Come October, you're going to get another flu shot because you're going to be moving into a new season. So it's not necessarily every year, it's every calendar year. So as you're moving into another calendar year or another calendar season, you have to get that shot all over. So in Florida, flu season lasts from when to when? So the flu season in Florida is a bit of a tricky one. It does, um, the funny thing is, everyone thinks about warm weather and thinks, oh gosh, in warm weather you've got less of everything, but it's kind of weird. RSV, influenza, all seem to last longer in our climates than they actually do seem to last in the colder climates. And so we notice that sometimes from as early as December into sometimes as late as April, May, you might still be in flu season. So you have to be very careful about that. And RSV is even longer 
It has to be depending on how far south you are. So the further south you are in Florida, the longer your season is. As you move north, it's shorter. So in Orlando, we have a much shorter season than we actually have in West Palm, which has a shorter season than we actually have in Miami. So the warmer the climate, ironically, the more the likelihood that um, you're going to be in an extended RSV season. Very interesting. And what are the risks and or dangers associated with respiratory issues and smoking around infants? So smoke is an irritant, and it's in the clearest sense of the word. Um, you inhale smoke, and it doesn't. What happens is even if you're not an asthmatic, and I'm sure a lot of you out there realize this, you inhale smoke, and literally you begin to feel like your throat begins to get a bit funny, a bit scratchy. Um, feels as if there's some irritation building up in your airways because it just irritates your airways. It's a chemical irritation in addition to the fact that it can make you spasm if you've got asthma. And when you're a newborn or a young child or even an older person, when you're taking in that air, it's creating inflammation, which is releasing a lot of these inflammatory cells, mostly neutrophils and stuff like that, into your airways. And these cells are pro-inflammatory. They're there to fight infection, but they're also possible it's always possible that when you combine them with certain things, they can make infections or inflammation seem worse. So all of a sudden, what should be a simple cold turns into a more um, prolonged cold because you're already in a pro-inflammatory state. So a lot of those kids um, will develop a lot of what parents would tend to call a bronchitis-type issue, which is typically what you expect to see in an adult that smokes, not in a child who doesn't smoke. So if you're getting someone who's showing up with that, then that's a sign that you know, your smoke's becoming a problem for them. How could a parent reduce that? So I get a lot of parents who will say, well, I smoke outside or grandma smokes outside. Um, does that make a difference? Well, technically speaking, it should. The truth, though, about life is it's really hard to set barriers and say, I only do this outside and in the corner and away from everyone wearing a smoking shirt. And then when I come inside, I take off my smoking shirt and everything else. Because, first of all, how many people walk into a room and smell smoke. You know, there's no one smoking, but they just smell smoke and immediately their airways tighten up. It happens. Just like people might smell perfume and their airways tighten up. So just because you're not necessarily smoking in front of a person doesn't mean that you're not still creating some irritation or some problems with their airways. And you might say, gosh, I don't smoke in the car when the kids are there. But if you smoke in the car when they're not there, a lot of that smoke is ending up in your beds. And then you turn on your car, you switch on that air conditioning, and poof, you know, these kids are literally getting all this smoke going into them. That's a really good point. Um, another question that I get a lot of is um, with pets. Uh, does a pet need to be kept out of a new baby's room? No, not really. No. You know, unless you've got one of those, like, really demon cats. That's <laughs> <laughs> get, get you. But, you know, no, no, really... It, you don't have to. You know, if you've got a gentle pet, it's just a pet. They, you know, most people tell you that their pets are incredibly safe around their kids. You know, it's really worse when the kids are old enough to start pulling the tails. That's when you worry. Sure, sure. You get bit. You can right. get bit. And they usually bite the face. Or clawed. Mm -hmm. And what age do children start to develop environmental allergies? So it actually is a really tough question because it depends. I've seen... Usually, for example, I'll give you an example. When it comes to testing children for allergies, for example, I usually don't tend to test kids unless, you know, blood, do any form of blood testing before they, um, about 
three years of age because we sort of want them to get into an allergy season and be presented with the allergens a couple of times so that their um, immunogenicity can sort of build up. And that way, when you test them, you're more likely to get a true result or not because if you do it too early, test might be normal, but you might find nothing. But I have seen kids where as early as a year and a half, they are clearly showing signs of environmental allergies. But the parents can usually tell you that you know, it's very clear-cut, not wishy-washy. They'll tell you that, look, it's pollen season, the trees are down, dad's getting snotty, the kid's super snotty, the kid's struggling, and you might try a little bit of an antihistamine, and voila, the kid just clears up completely. And, you know, sometimes you'll see it earlier, but usually I say three years is about a good time to start thinking really closely. Um, but, some, but usually if you're testing them somewhere between three and five years of age, you can probably test them and expect to get what should be a optimal report. Okay, that's a very interesting because I get that one a lot when babies come in with colds. Parents ask, "Is it uh, an allergy?" Yes, exactly. Um, so, if a baby does have a cold, will a humidifier help? So, if they do, honestly, um, if a baby has a cold, so when you think about a cold, you just break it down and look at a few things. You know, do they have a stuffy nose? You know, is it a lot of a runny nose? Because with children, believe it or not, a large part of the resistance in their airways, which is, a, you know, when you breathe, what, whether you can breathe easily or not easily, depends on whether you can get air all the way in. Children tend to build up a lot of resistance in their, in their upper airways and their noses. They're not really good mouth breathers. They're typically nasal breathers. So even if you put a brick wall in front of their nose, they'd rather breathe through it than open their mouths. So they tend to struggle a lot. So when I look at babies and they're having a cold, my first thing that I'm looking at is what can I do to ease the congestion at the level of the nose. Um, is it better to just suction, but not too deeply, just to make sure the nose stays clear? Is it better to use just saline to break down some of that mucus if it's really thick, just so you can suction it and clear it out? Is it better to use an something like ipotropium, which is a nasal spray like atrovent to clear things up? And I would tend to do one of those. I try to stay away from um, medications like Afrin and stuff like that. Okay. Even though you could probably use it for a couple of days with no, without any significant issues, I always worry that people will end up overusing it and you'll develop a second set of problems as a result of that. So we really don't want to go there. When it comes to humidifiers, they shouldn't hurt. But truthfully, they really probably don't help. Um, the bigger thing to worry about, especially as the kids are getting older, is <clears throat> if they truly do have allergies, then your humidifier could become a problem. Because remember, one of the problems with a humidifier is you're putting humidity into an environment and making that environment more humid than it should be, which means you're going to have rain out. Mm -hmm. And if this patient is allergic to molds or dust mites, um, that additional humidity and rain out is just going to produ produce a better environment for both mold and dust mites to proliferate. So I always tell people to be careful when it comes to how often and how they use humidifiers. So if you want to limit it to just when they have a cold and not just keep it going on all the time, that might be okay. Okay. Very good. And moving back to NICU babies, what are your thoughts on apnea monitors? Ah, so, <clears throat> so an apnea monitor, in case anyone out there doesn't really know what it is, is a device that we usually put on babies um, to kind of give us an idea as to whether they have these periods when they stop breathing or not. There are two schools of thought. There are some people who don't believe in them completely, and then there are some people who do believe that it has a role. I actually think an apnea monitor can be useful for a number of reasons. There are truly some children out there that stop breathing in their sleep. 
Now, the apnea monitor isn't going to fix the reason why they stop breathing, and sometimes it may just be an alarm or something that alerts a parent as to why it happens. If you know how to interpret the data, so if you're getting an apnea monitor, it has to be one that we can actually go back and look at the data points in it and see what was real, why did this happen, did this actually have any impact on the heart rate and stuff like that? Because if it does, you can actually see trend patterns um, that do matter. But the key thing about an apnea monitor is an apnea monitor is only useful if the person who it's alerting knows what to do about the information. And I say that because I've watched, I've looked at an apnea monitor strip that was about 30 minutes long from when a patient initially started having those events. And I've watched them from when the event started all the way to the moment the child died. And all the parent did the whole time was look at the monitor and stare at the child and call 911 and didn't intervene, didn't try and, I guess they froze. Sure. You know, but the reality of it is this is a situation where the avenue monitor really did give them information that was needed. Something's happening. But then the person who got the information needed to do something with the information they got and they didn't. So I've come to accept the fact that apnea monitors are actually useful, but they're only truly useful if the person getting the information knows what to do once the monitor gives them that information. So parents of a NICU graduate should get CPR training. Absolutely, yes. In fact, when we order apnea monitors, we always order a CPR training alongside it because we want to make sure that if the alarm goes off, you actually know what you're supposed to do. Excellent. Do you recommend baby wearing for NICU graduates? Baby wearing? So that's where you would wrap the baby up um, in, it's a cloth, mm -hmm. um, and you just would wrap, wrap baby up. Um, some people have it, some concerns with it because the NICU graduates can't protect the airway. So you mean, so like where the parents sort of... Correct. Yeah. But so no, truthfully speaking, there isn't a logical reason why a NICU graduate who's made it out of the NICU shouldn't be sleeping in their own bed the way any other term baby who's going home should be. Invariably, the safest way for children to sleep is in their own bed, mm -hmm. in their own space, on their backs. Um, and whether that's in your bedroom, which is now something that the AAP says is okay, or whether it's in their own bedroom, which um, those of us in sleep medicine think is better, um, is, it doesn't really matter, but truthfully speaking, I think it probably makes us as parents feel better when we do it, then it actually helps the child. Because if that kid is fine and stable enough to go home from the NICU, they don't really need to be on you for tactile stimulation in order for them to breathe or to generate warmth and heat for themselves. It's probably just making you feel better. Okay. Comfort factor. Yeah. Well, the kid's been in the NICU all this while, hasn't been on you, and you feel like you should make up. Mm -hmm. I understand that. Uh, if a baby is sent home on oxygen, what type of support can a parent expect and how should a family prepare? So that's a bit of a funny one. When I used to be in Philadelphia, in, in Pennsylvania, every time a person went home with oxygen, they gave you a pulse oximeter. So you could actually measure it and see what the person's oxygen levels were on when, when you did that. And when I moved to Florida, I realized that uh, you didn't necessarily get a pulse oximeter just because you were on oxygen which makes it tricky because now you have no way of actually knowing should I be given oxygen and how much should I be given and when can I lower the doses. So in the ideal setting, you should have um, you should have a pulse oximeter if you're going home on oxygen so that we can kind of get an idea of 
Are we giving enough oxygen? Should we give more? Should we give less? And it will also help us in titrating downwards so that the patient can be titrated at home rather than bringing you into a sleep lab every time we want to reduce something in you to see if it's actually going to work with you. In terms of um, other support, depending on if this patient also has any other significant medical issues, some folks might be able to get nursing or home nursing associated with that. But if you're just on oxygen and nothing else, it might be a little bit more difficult to get that additional support. Okay. Okay. Do the families have to contact the electric company um, to let them know that the baby's on oxygen or has any sort of medical equipment? It helps. I mean, you, obviously, if you can afford to pay on the Christie bill and it's not a big deal, then you, you really don't have to. One of the great things about America is you actually have constant electricity. Uh, most of the time. So you don't really have to tell the electrical authorities because you're worried about the power going out in your area. But if you are someone who's going to have trouble paying electricity bills, and some of the equipment can use a lot of electricity. So if you've got a child on an oxygen concentrator at home, which is running continuously and using up a lot of electricity, you might actually need to get a waiver um, from the electric company so that they know not to cut your electricity bills or give you some sort of discount so that your bills can be much more manageable. And a lot of times the parents will get those forms and bring them to your office or my office and we'll fill them out to um, you know, to attest to the fact that the patient is on these additional medical technologies that are needed at home. It's also important, um, not just for the electricity, but you need to let the uh, fire service know, for example, during a storm mm-hmm. or something, that you've got a kid at home who's on a ventilator or on sensitive medical equipment. So in the event that there's a power outage in the area, the fire service can go to that place and get that child because they know they need to move them to an environment where there is electricity and stuff like that. Excellent. Very good information. Uh, next question. How are preterm babies' lung issues related to feeding issues like poor nippling, um, a need for increased calories, like the preterm formulas, and, and poor waking? So the problem with having um, preterm lungs, especially immature preterm lungs in general, is um, they're not really good at absorbing oxygen as well as they should. So um, what does our body? What do our bodies do when they need oxygen? We breathe faster. We breathe harder. Our hearts beat faster because we're trying to um, get air and oxygen and all into our body. So, uh, preterm babies can actually have fairly high metabolic demands. So they demand more calories. Um, but in order for their bodies to actually handle those calories, they need more oxygen. So it becomes kind of like a double-edged thing. So a lot of times you'll get preterm babies who are coming to the clinic and they're not growing. And I always say, if you've, got a, if you've got a preterm baby, the expectation you should have is every month they should be growing somewhere between a pound and a half to two pounds a month. So if you've got someone who's just chronically growing at about a pound or less than a pound a month, you have to consider the fact that if there's nothing else wrong with them and you get enough food, like the volume seems to be right going in, then you have to assume that maybe they're not getting enough oxygen, maybe they're burning too much energy just simply trying to breathe. And that might be the kind of child who, who, although they look normal and their oxygen saturations are normal, that might be the kind of kid that you say, you know what, we're going to put you on nighttime oxygen regardless, because we want to see if it will help you grow faster so that you're breathing slower at night, you're not burning as many calories, and see if the child will do better. So we will do that. Also, if you're spending so much time breathing or you're um, just having to breathe that fast, it becomes very hard to suck and latch. And you almost become like a kid who's got a cold 
because when you've got a cold in your nose and stuff, you literally can't feed well. You, you can't suck if you have to breathe at the same time. And so the more work you have to do breathing, the harder it becomes for you to feed and the more energy you're wasting just with what should be a normal menial task that should be using less energy in general. Okay, thank you for explaining that. It made sense. Um, next question. Are infants ex who are exposed to illicit drugs, mostly marijuana in utero, are they more at risk for respiratory issues? Not significantly, no. There is more concern around tobacco smoke than there seems to be. But now the truth is, I don't think we've done enough um, specific studies to see the impact of how marijuana actually affects newborns or infants. I guess now that medical marijuana is becoming more acceptable, we'll probably begin to get more peer-reviewed published data that can begin to look at the impacts of marijuana on infants and, you know, which is standardized studies and well-done ones. Because right now, before this time, anyone who was using it was using it sort of under the table. So it wasn't like they were going out there and telling their doctors, hey, we're all on marijuana. Can you see if this has any long-term impacts on our children? So I guess we'll get better information going forward. Excellent. And are there any differences in sleep habits between preterm and term babies? So eh, really minimal to a large extent. Um, the earlier you are, the more sleep you tend to have. So your um, newborns and your preterms tend to have more of what we call an ultradian pattern, which means they live basically on the premise of sleep, wake, eat, sleep, wake, eat, sleep, wake, eat. And they just do that around the 24 o'clock and no rhyme or rhythm to it. Um, newborns and preterms tend to um, go very quickly into REM sleep. So unlike um, anyone who's over uh, six months to a year, typically takes about 90 minutes before you go into REM, which is when you're dreaming. But newborns can go from wake right into REM and go right into dream state immediately. So you might see that they're actually more active sleepers initially, and it's actually called more of an active sleep that they tend to have. And that pattern changes as you get closer to six months. We move away from active, quiet sleep to more of the adult form sleep. They still need more sleep, obviously, when they're less than a year old, and then, but they become more consolidated, so they go from sleeping around the clock to taking two naps, and then when they're about two years of age, they start taking one nap, and then when they're about five years of age, moving into kindergarten, they're pretty much getting ready to get rid of that nap and just mm -hmm. move to a, a regular adult schedule, even though they need more sleep overall. Thank you. Those were wonderful points. Thank you so much for all that information. Thank you. Um, any take-home points for us, tips? Well, you know, what I would say is, you know, if you are the parent of a NICU graduate, um, things should go really well. Most NICU babies, once they're out of the NICU, it seems to do amazingly well when they get, once, they get, once they leave the hospital. But you, know, you need to pay attention to whether they're growing. Because if they're not growing, that could be a sign that they're working too hard, whether that's because there's something going on with their heart, so they're burning a lot of energy, or there's something going wrong with, that, wrong with their breathing, and so they're burning a lot of energy, and those are two big things. So even though they might look fine, you need to pay attention to those things to make sure that they are actually growing well. Take your vaccinations very seriously. Um, Make sure you take your flu shots if you're a parent. If the child's over six months of age, make sure they're getting it. Now, remember, when it comes to vaccination and all, we use the time of birth, not necessarily just the, not necessarily the, I mean, we use the, from the day you're born, not necessarily 
your gestational age to determine it. So once they're six months old, they really should be getting their flu shots in. And if they've got any older siblings, they definitely should be doing um, the same as well. Otherwise, one thing I always tell people to remember, everything about babies is brand new. It actually works. There are no use parts. So unless we really mess them up, they really do do well on the long run. So it's one of the fun parts about doing pediatrics. We get to work with new stuff. There you go. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us.